The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Serving spiritual seekers around the world. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody, and great, blessed, good morning, afternoon, or evening to you, whenever it is and wherever you are. So happy that you're spending this time with us, and I'm also so happy to be telling you who's going to be on the show today. After the break, we'll be bringing on Dr. Glenn Livingston, who, if you have been troubled with an unhealthy relationship with food or if you know anybody who's had that situation, heaven knows I have, uh, you'll want to let them know about this. Dr. Glenn Livingston has invented a program that he calls Never Binge Again. That's a good time to binge again, never. And right now, I'm bringing back somebody who's one of my favorite people and one of your favorite people, and that is John Pierre, a fitness trainer, author, renowned nutritionist. He has trained military personnel, hardcore athletes, Hollywood celebrities, rock stars, and Fortune 500 executives, and he has inspired me for low these, gosh, I think I've known him 32 years Uh I was young. He was an infant, just about, (laughs) back when we met in Chicago. I want to draw your attention to our October 5th, 2016 program that you can find in the archives because John was on that show talking about his latest book, Strong, Savvy, Safe. JP is credited as being one of the first pioneers in the U.S. to create brain-building classes that enhance cognitive fitness in our geriatrics community, and 25 years of experience have provided John with a unique, 
understanding and ability to help those with cognitive challenges. He's also the author of The Pillars of Health, and you can find out more about John at johnpierre.com. Welcome, my good friend. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's wonderful. We did promise everybody that we were going to devote January to really helping people be fit and healthy in their real lives, in the real world. And the reason I wanted you here for this is that you build people's self-esteem as you help build their fitness. And I think some people in that industry kind of tear people down in hopes of building them up. So tell us your philosophy. Well, you know, I definitely think movement, we should change the term from exercise to movement because too many people have a negative connotation with the word exercise. And our body doesn't really need traditional exercise, you know, machines and things like that. It just means constant movement throughout the day. And, you know, once we change that term, people start looking more at things that are fun and they look to play more than they do the drudgery of going to a gym and sitting on a machine or doing some sort of repetitive exercise that isn't very fun. So I think movement should be throughout the day, and I definitely think it should be something that is joyful and fun and actually more playful, you know, just like a child would play. So you're doing all sorts of uh, body movements, uh, squatting, twisting, bending, reaching. And one of the things that I do with clients is I use a lot of toys. I mean, I use balloons and I use balls quite a bit. And I can give, uh, a, you know, a really hardcore athlete an incredible workout just with a balloon. And it may seem funny, but if, if you look at JohnPierre.com, you'll see me training Ellen DeGeneres, and you'll see all the fun that we had there, you know, working with Ellen and her staff and everything. And you'll hear Ellen say, the most fun I ever had is working with John Pierre. And that's oh. because, you know, people want fun. People don't want drudgery. They don't want to just go into a gym and, and be gritting their teeth all the time. Maybe if you're an athlete and you're aiming for some sort of event or something, that's different. But the average person wants something that's fun. Yeah, I think that's why I'm so in love with aerial yoga, because when I feel like I'm flying, I don't care what they ask me to do. I'll just do it, because <laughs> there's a perk. Sure. There's a perk built well, absolutely. in. Absolutely. And so, the fun John- releases a lot of endorphins, just like exercise does. So if you're exercising or movement, doing movement and having fun, you get a double, a double dose. So why is it, and maybe I'm asking you a question that gets into the psychological, spiritual component of people, why have we come up with this society that just doesn't move and lots of times doesn't want to? Well, it's a vicious cycle because the less you move, the less you want to move. So the less the less uh, circulation you have and the less circulation you have, the less oxygen you have. And so then all of a sudden you start getting tired and you get lethargic because your body circulatory system is impeded. And so you know, really technology is is pretty much invaded our life so much that it's moved movement out. I mean, you can't even go in your kitchen today and do anything with fine motor coordination. We've got electric can openers, and we go to the store and we buy our produce, our carrots, and our beets already shred it and grade it. So it's like, you know, really once the Industrial Revolution moved in and we had all this automation, it really stopped us from moving. And if you look, when I was working in geriatrics starting over 25 years ago, all those seniors would tell me stories on they carried their brother on their back to school every day, whether it's raining or snowing. And they basically moved from morning till night and they all had recreation, whereas most of the schools today have eliminated physical education. So they were moving all day long just, just out of necessity. 
and today the only movement kids get is, is using remote controls and uh, texting and using a computer. It's very scary. And I've had clients come in my office in Chicago, 12 years old, 270 pounds. Just a yes. tragedy. I mean, not only physically does a child have diabetes, you know, they have diabetes, they have obesity, they have heart disease, but their self-esteem is just doesn't even exist. I mean, it just... It's just horrible. So, yeah, it's society, unfortunately, has done it to most of us, and we have to do our best every day to kind of counter that. So we have to sneak movement in as much as we can. Just an hour at the gym doesn't cut it anymore because an hour at the gym doesn't counter 23 hours of sitting and lying down. Mm. So what do you tell people? If, if one of our listeners were to come to you uh, for a consultation, what would you tell him or her? Regular, regular well, person, I mean, not an athlete. Generally, yeah, I'm generally looking at a food diary, and I'm looking at um, kind of from the minute they wake up to the minute they go to bed, I'm, I'm looking at the movement they're getting. One thing, the simplest thing that people can do is invest in a pedometer. And a pedometer is just a tiny little device, you know, almost the size of a quarter, half a dollar or so, that you just attach to your belt. And it just measures the amount of steps that you take in a day. And some people get a Fitbit, which is, you know, more expensive. But it's, it does more fun things. It can calculate caloric uh, burning, and you can chart it on your computer and all that. But I, I, just, I actually have both, and I, I, I really just use the, the, the pedometer for 10 or $15. And that, that keeps you honest because that allows you to see from the minute you get up to the minute you go to bed how many steps are you getting in a day. And, you know, the Amish men in an in average day would get about 18,000 steps. And we wow. like to see the average American would like if they're going to be fairly active, we'd love to see between eight and 10,000 steps. So when you first get your pedometer, you check it out for a couple of days and maybe you'll find you're only doing three or 4,000 steps. That doesn't mean the next day you need to do eight or 10,000, but you just keep, keep account of it. You just look at it and you just check it out and just every day try to increase a little bit more, but it keeps you honest. So it makes you, so you don't, um, you're, you're not just sitting all the time. You, you start thinking, oh, my gosh, well, I've been sitting for two hours at work. Maybe I should get up and go get a drink or walk up and down or go talk to a colleague, you know, on the next floor or something. But it just encourages you to move more. So that would be one thing for sure. Um, the other thing that I would do is just try to sneak little exercise or movement sessions in throughout the day. So I've had a lot of clients who've lost, well, maybe 125, 150 pounds in a little over a year. And they never really went to a gym, but what they did is they would put some exercise bands or some exercise weights in each room, and then every time they went in the kitchen, you know, they'd do a set of push-ups off the counter. If they went into the bathroom, they would do 15 squats, you know, sitting up and down on the toilet. Uh, if they went into their front room, they would have some exercise bands and do some curls or something. So you kind of just sneak movement in that way. So between a pedometer and sneaking movement in, uh, those are two real easy ways to, to get fit without really working at it. I love that. But tell me this, John, having kind of cut teeth on that old aerobic sort of philosophy from the 70s that you have to spend 20 to 30 minutes in the aerobic training zone, does just getting all these steps and, and doing some resistance work, is that enough? It's not, it depends on what your goal is, but I would say it's not quite enough. It's a start. I do like to see people get at least 12 to 15 minutes of movement in cardiovascular wise. So some walking, 
some biking, some swimming, something nonstop for 12 to 15 minutes in addition to, you know, the pedometer and sneaking stuff in. And it really depends on if you're a mailman and you're walking all day long or UPS or, you know, then when you, you do your movements, you don't need to do as much leg stuff, but you might more balance or yoga. So you have to find what your weakness is and then kind of work on that. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're doing strength all day long and you're not getting any cardio, then you want to work on that. You basically have to find what your weakness is and then, you know, work on that. Okay, this is all very, very doable. Listeners, let me know. Write to me. Tell me if, if uh, John Pierre is speaking your language. He certainly speaks mine. Now, I know, uh, John, I don't think we got to this on the last show when we were talking about your latest book, Strong, Savvy, Safe, which is amazing. It's all about um, it's self-defense, but it's more self-care. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful, very holistic concept. And part of that book, you talk about body image and food addiction, which we're going to be continuing on with the next guest. So why did you include that in a book about self-defense and give us your take on it? Well, you know, Strong, Savvy, Safe is not really just about physical self-defense. It's it's about predominantly emotional self-defense. You know, I've worked with abused women for, boy, uh, it's about 30 years now. And most all the women that I've ever met have been hurt far more from their husbands or their boyfriends or their fathers and their brothers by their words that they said to them than they, they have been being physically hurt. And we have to just be very careful about the words that we use, the TV shows that we watch, the media that we allow in, because then we start believing, you know, we're supposed to look like a supermodel. And they don't realize I've worked with supermodels. They don't realize that some of these supermodels exercise eight hours a day have bulimia, anorexia, massive eating disorders. And as years go on, of course, they don't look like a supermodel anymore, but they've destroyed their intestinal system. They have horrible um, joint and muscle and ligament injuries that never recover. They've just destroyed themselves. So it's not realistic for a woman to look like the images that we see in the media. Go look at any aboriginal tribe and look how those women look. That's normal to have normal body fat. It's normal to have some wrinkles and some sagging skin as you get older. You might not like it, and it's up to you if you want to go to try to change it. But the, the, the point is, is at what cost? Because if you're exercising four or five hours a day exhaustively, of course you're going to get adrenal exhaustion and start, you know, destroying your brain. There's no doubt about that because that high levels of cortisol destroy the hippocampus, which is responsible for memory and creativity. So it's just a, vi- a big, vicious cycle. So I, I just really, the, the whole idea of that book is I just wanted to alert not only women, but also men and especially parents that at birth were starting to indoctrinate children. Um, you know, when you're born, Victoria, you're given a Barbie doll. I'm given a G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip. You're given an Easy Bake <laughs> Oven. I'm given a slingshot. So we're basically just, we're barely out of the womb and we're starting to get our roles defined for us. And, you know, when I was in Washington, D.C., I lectured at the uh, Capitol for about 150 congressional people. And one of the things that I talked about was you've got children that are 12 years old today that still believe in Santa Claus and they're watching violent pornography. So little boys are starting to think, oh, maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. And then little girls who see it think, well, maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. So, yeah, the whole body image is something that I've written about, I've talked about quite a bit, and uh, it's one of the most destructive um, concepts out there, the way, you know, w- women and boys start learning about themselves at a young age. It's very, it's very, very harmful for them. 
Well, something that you're doing, we talked about it a little bit before the show, and I know we don't have a lot of time, but I would love to hear, you know, so often people say, oh, you vegans, you animal rights people, you care about animals, you don't care about people. Big myth, that one. But you've been working to help end child sex trafficking. Tell us a little bit about your work in that. Sure. I work with Project Child Save. So it's just Project Child Save, S-A-V-E dot org. And what it is, it's, it's retired Navy SEALs and Green Berets and, and, and military personnel who basically donate their time. No one gets paid. And they basically rescue, you know, children uh, that have been, that's been, have been sold into sex trafficking. Some of them have been stolen, uh, you know, kidnapped. And they go in and they rescue these children and they get them, they get them out of there and they get them in homes. And it's amazing. I mean, you have children as young, it's hard to even imagine, but as young as five years of age that are in this industry. And there was recently just uh, something came on the news that a girl that was uh, caught in sex trafficking, she had been sexually assaulted uh, over, you know, 30,000 times. Oh my God. All the way up to her teenage years. So this is something that is really, really scary and prevalent. And, um, yeah, a lot of people that do animal activism and, and plant-based nutrition, they, of course, they love humanity too. I mean, the two oral reports I did in high school 30 years ago were women's rights and animal rights. So it's the same thing I'm doing today. And in Chicago, I used to take the L downtown with a duffel bag filled with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and little thermoses of hot tea and deliver it to the homeless people and clothing. So I've always done for not just animals, but humanity. And then my background's in geriatrics. I choose to go in, I chose to go into geriatrics because that was a portion of society way back when in the early, early 80s that was really, I thought, neglected. So I think it's definitely, it's not true when people think that as animal activists, all we do is care about animals and that nothing could be further from the truth. John, I wish you could be cloned. <laughs> we need thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of you. So very quickly, we're down to our wire. Tell us about your nonprofit, Living with Harmony. John, did I lose you? Okay. Well, everybody, John Pierre has a nonprofit called Living with Harmony. <laughs> And uh, we will put information about that on the Main Street Vegan show notes, which you can find at MainStreetVegan.net. And we'll have all the information about John's book, Strong, Savvy, Safe, his website, JohnPierre.com, his Facebook page. It's got to be John. Peace, love, JP. (laughs) Okay. Is he back? I'm back. Okay. Uh, Real quick, Living with Harmony. Uh, Living with Harmony, my sanctuary. Yes. Oh, so yep, that that we're working very hard. It's a 501c3, and uh, basically, you know, we again we work with Project Child Save uh, to help them. We also help a uh, food pantry in Colorado for homeless people or people who don't have a high income. We give them food and uh, for their for cats and dogs, and then we're looking for property um, so we can have an animal sanctuary and retreat center. So uh, that's livingwithharmony.org. Beautiful, beautiful. John, love you to pieces. Thank you so much. May you have a wonderful year, and I'll see you in July at Vegetarian Summerfest. Take good care. And everybody else, stay with us. We're going to learn how to never binge again.
Wouldn't you like to share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world? That's easier than ever with mobile giving. Just text Unity Radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everybody. Some quick announcements. The blog this week at MainStreetVegan.net is from Diana Goldman, a Main Street Vegan certified lifestyle coach and educator in Boston, and it's called 10 Steps to Grant Funding Your Vegan Work. So if you've got something you oh so want to do, but you're just kind of missing some of the cash, do take a look at Diana's wonderful blog this week. And if you're listening sometimes in the far-off future, uh, January 24, 2017 was the date of that blog. Also, do check out the events page at MainStreetVegan.net because my speaking for just about all of 2017 is up there. And coming up this very Sunday afternoon, if you are in New York City or you know somebody in New York City, I'm going to be speaking at Unity of New York, the same Unity that has Unity Online Radio that sponsors this program. Um, Unity of New York meets in Symphony Space, a beautiful, beautiful concert hall on the Upper West Side, 94th and Broadway. So I will be speaking at the Sunday service. And then that afternoon, I'm doing a workshop called Food and Spirituality, All You Need to Know to Eat Like a Yogi. So if that is of interest or you know somebody in these parts who might find that of interest, that is from 2 to 4 on Sunday, January 29th. I hope you'll come and say, I heard you on the podcast. Now it is my distinct pleasure to introduce our next guest, Dr. Glenn Livingston. He's a psychologist you may have seen in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, or the New York Daily News. He's researched the nature of overeating for decades, a self-funded study with over 40,000 participants. Today, Glenn shares his personal journey out of obesity and provides practical tips to quickly 
Stop Overeating. Welcome, Dr. Glenn Livingston. Well, thank you so much for having me, Victoria. I've been looking forward to this. Oh, me too. It's wonderful, wonderful to have you. So how did this all come about? How did this become the uh, key focus of um, study in your life? Well, I, I, am, um, I am a sufferer. I, I, when I was an adolescent and a young adult, I was what you would probably diagnose today as an um, exercise bulimic which means that I'm 6'4", and I'm fairly muscular, and I figured out that if I could if, if I could work out for two and a half or three hours a day, that I could eat whatever I wanted to do. I could have six, 7,000 calories, and I would take in. I, I didn't purge. I didn't stick my finger down my throat, but my form of purging was with exercise, and now we would diagnose that as exercise bulimia. When I got to um, graduate school, I'm surprised that I survived my adolescent young adulthood, given everything that I ate. But when I got to graduate school, I got married and I um, started seeing patients. And all of a sudden, I was extraordinarily busy. I was also commuting two hours each way to Yeshiva um, University in the Bronx. And I just didn't have the time to work out. I mean, maybe three times a week for half an hour, but it was drastically different. And I found that it was very difficult to curtail my food consumption. I still had the obsession. And, um, and so I gained weight, and I got my triglycerides up to about 1,100, and it was about 60 pounds heavier. And more importantly, yeah, Sam, I'm a psychologist from a family of 17 counselors and therapists and psychiatrists and psychologists, my, my mom and my dad and my aunt and my uncle and my sister and my brother-in-law and my step-parents and my cousins and my grandparents, and it's, it's just ridiculous. And, and so being a psychologist was really, really important to me. It's like the most important thing in my life. I, and I couldn't be present for these people that were presenting very, very serious situations. Here I'd worked my whole life to get myself in the position that I could start to see patients. And I was working with couples who just had an affair, and I was working with some people who were suicidal and... Um, and I couldn't be 100% present for them, and that really, really bothered me because um, and the reason I couldn't be present was because I kept thinking about when, when is the next time I can get a whole pizza or can I run out and buy you know, four or five chocolate bars or you know, kind of things that overeaters can do. And, um, and so I started to look for a solution, and being a psychologist, I looked in all the psychological places because... If you have a hammer and you have a really good hammer, things really start to look like a nail. So I, I went to um, the best psychologists and psychiatrists, and I went to Overeaters Anonymous, and I learned an awful lot through all this. I also did, I also funded my own study. I think you mentioned that in the introduction. Because I, I don't have kids and I never commuted, so I had a dual career doing consulting for, um, for industry, uh, a lot of consulting for big food, which I'm now kind of ashamed of. Um, but I knew how to run these studies, and so I developed a big study online in the days when it was cheap to solicit people online and looked at the relationship between the things people had trouble controlling themselves with, with food, and several personality variables. And I can talk a little bit more about what I found because it was interesting, but, but um, the bottom line was that all of the psych- psychological soul-searching it did a lot to improve my life, 
Um, well, I'll give you a specific example. So, so in the in the food study, one of the things that I found was that people that tend to overeat chocolate, and particularly when they feel like they can't stop eating chocolate, they are more likely to be feeling heartbroken or lonely than other people. And I thought that was really interesting because I'm one of those people that has trouble with chocolate. My, my sister can take two squares out of her purse, fold up the bar, put it back in her purse for the next week, and I just don't know what's wrong with her. I, I don't get it. Um, I, I, I need three or four bars. Just as if I'm going to have chocolate, I just want to have three or four bars. It just doesn't make sense to me. Um, and so when I found this in the study, I, I talked to my psychologist about it. I, I, um, I went back and I talked to my mom about it. And she said, you know, Glenn, when you were little, I feel bad about this, but I used to keep a bottle of chocolate Bosco, which was crazy chocolate syrup when I was a kid. I used to keep a bottle of it in the refrigerator on the floor so that you could go get it when I didn't have the time to hug you or comfort you when you were crying. And I thought, wow, right. Wow. Like how, how much more, how much more of a connection could you ask for? But, but here's the thing. I, I didn't stop eating chocolate when I figured that out. I, I developed a better relationship with my mom when I figured that out. I felt more forgiving of myself when I figured that out. I felt a little more present um, and I didn't have as much shame after I figured that out. But I, I, I couldn't stop. And I think the reason I couldn't stop was because there was this voice in my head that would say, and I found this in my patient's heads also and, and my coaching client's heads about all sorts of different foods. It, it would say something like, you know, Glenn, you're right. Your, your mama didn't love you enough. And she left all these holes in your heart. And until you can fix that, you're just going to have to keep on binging on chocolate. And it doesn't really matter because chocolate comes from a cocoa bean and cocoa beans grow on plants and a plant is a vegetable. So therefore chocolate's really a vegetable. And, you know, it's obviously not a healthy voice in my head that would say that, but at the moment of impulse, that's really all I needed to keep going. And I would find that a lot of my clients had similar, similar motivations. But like um, another thing that the study found was that salty, crunchy, starchy things tend to, to give people trouble who are very stressed at work, particularly if they had a boss that was bothering them. And they had a voice inside them that would say, you know, you're right. Yeah, her boss is a real bastard and, until we can get out from under her, and we're just going to have to keep on eating pretzels and Doritos and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so what I, what, I, what I found was that while food was a real window into the soul, that, that insight by itself didn't really solve things. I had to figure out how to deal with a voice. Um, I'm, I'm a little sensitive to how I talk about this with your audience because it, it involves an alternative addiction treatment that's... Um, kind of antithetical to the 12-step program. So let me just say that um, I, I learned an awful lot in the 12-step programs, and I know it helps a lot of people, um, but it, it didn't really help me. And um, I, don't, I don't mean to be antagonistic to it at all in how we're, we're talking. Um, oh, it's fine. My, my audience has heard me. It, it did work for me. It took a while. I've been free from binging as long as I've been vegan, which is 33 years, which is half my life. 
So it obviously works for some people, but it does not work for everybody, and that's why we want to hear what you have to say. So keep okay. going. Okay. So I came across Jack Trimpey's work, at Rational Recovery, and he's fairly protective of his work, so I have to be careful not to use his trademark terms or anything like that. But, but essentially what he said was that, look, addiction stems from a misdirection of our survival instinct in the lizard brain. And the lizard brain is our brainstem. It's the part of us that um, it evolved millions and mil- really hundreds of millions of years ago. And it's not really where our soul is located or what we think of as us. The lizard brain looks at something in the, in, in the environment and it says, do I meet with it? Do I eat it? Or do I kill it? The lizard brain doesn't think about um, love or relationships or family or tribe or herd or society or creativity or the soul. The liver brain just thinks eat, mate, or kill. And it's the higher brain structures which are the source of emotional connections to others and the source of the ability to delay gratification and, and, um, and uh, pursue longer-term goals. And that's where we really develop an identity as a human being. And so what he said was the problem we have in most of the addiction treatment world is that we're trying to love the lizard brain. We, we have the notion that the craving, the erroneous craving is a derivative of the pain inside. And so we're opening up to our insides with love at that moment, hoping that we can fill the hole in our heart before we stop the, the addictive behavior. And he said what was really necessary was the opposite. So what you want to do is kind of look at the lizard brain as sociopathic and that it's actually an enemy at, at the moment that it's directing itself towards, towards addiction. It's our friend when it does what it was supposed to do, which is, you know, get us to, get us to pursue leafy greens and, you know, a lot of the natural foods and nature that um, are designed to give us energy and cleanse our systems and, make us whole, healthy human beings. But the food industry is really, uh, well, no, I'm straying into my work, but, but um, a lot of the addictive substances have the capacity to corrupt that survival drive. And what you need to do is cultivate a sense of feeling of disgust with it so that at the moment of impulse, you are jolted into your upper brain again. Um, and, and so, and, and that the, lower brain really responds to dominance more than love. So it's almost like you want to treat it the way that an alpha wolf would treat a challenger in the pack, to snarl at it with the intent to kill. And I had to make a lot of modifications because, you know, like we say in OA, food is, food is a tiger you've got to take out of the cage and walk around the block a few times a day. You can't, you can't just quit entirely. Um, whereas drugs and alcohol are things that you can quit entirely. And for that reason, I tell people who are struggling with drugs and alcohol, don't use my book, use Trinity's book, because um, he's got much more experience with drugs and alcohol. And I, and I made a lot of modifications to this concept to make it work for the food. Um, but, but essentially, here's what I did. I said, okay, so let's say I say that I'm never going to have chocolate again. Well, I've got a pig inside me, and that, that pig is squealing for pig slop. The chocolate is pig slop, and I don't eat pig slop, 
and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Now, when I say this in a vegan audience, let me just disclose that I'm a vegan. Um, I'm both a vegan for health and ethical reasons, and I'm only talking about a mental construct. I am not talking about being mean to actual pigs. I think actual pigs desperately need our help for being horribly mistreated by factory farms, and I'm sure you know a lot more about that than I do. But um, I, I chose to call this interesting entity a pig because pigs eat just about anything, and... Um, and it was a very visual, guttural image that I, I really wouldn't eat from a pig's trough. Um, other people that I work with, they call it their inner B-I-T-C-H. Um, they'll call it their inner slacker. As long as you don't think of it as a cute pet, it's something that you really want to separate from and look at as, um, look at as a challenger that you have to kind of lock up and, and dominate, not a cute pet that you're going to nurture back to health. And I'm always a little embarrassed, Victoria, when I get to this part of the story because you know, I went to school for all these years. I had the best education, the best upbringing. I went, I have all these credentials and all these studies. I'm a multi-million dollar CEO for a lot of years. And this is what I'm talking about. There's a pig inside me, skills to slap, and I don't need pig slap, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. <laughs> and, um, but it worked. And I kept the journal while I was doing it. And, um, you know, about five years later, I, I, published a journal and I've edited it into an allegory and I published the journal and it became Never Binge Again and I was doing really well. And what did people tell you when they, they've read your book, they've, they've worked with you, how's their life different? Well, there's one of two things. Sometimes they tell me I'm a bastard and that I'm, I'm, ruining the addiction treatment industry <laughs> and um, and that I, I am it's about 15% of the people and usually they haven't read the whole book um, and usually they haven't listened to any of the recorded coaching sessions that I make available um, on the blog or anything like that because if, if you listen to this in practice it's actually a very compassionate philosophy it's a very empowering philosophy um, but I understand why people feel like they might not want to fight a pig inside of them. It feels like they're calling part of themselves a pig. But that lizard brain is not really the seed of your identity and your soul. It's not really you. Um, and, and, and I think that some of the gestalt philosophy, philosophy where we got the notion that we should love and accept all parts of ourselves, um, I think it's, it's a little distorted and doesn't quite understand the difference between the lizard brain and the upper levels of neuroanatomy. But, but, but that said, that, some people hate it, and I understand that. It's kind of the price they pay for getting the word out. Most people tell me that it gives them a new power that they didn't expect that they had. It's not a perfect power at first. Um, and what I'd like in this, too, is if, you're, if you were an archer and you wanted to shoot at the bullseye, you would aim squarely at the bullseye with the totality of your being. You would purge your mind of all doubt and distraction and uncertainty. You would concentrate wholly on the bullseye, and you'd do your absolute best to hit to the bullseye. You would commit, 100% commit to the moment, and get that arrow as close to the bullseye as you could. Now, are you going to hit the bullseye every time? Probably not. Sometimes you might miss it by a wide margin. But what you wouldn't do after missing it is say, you know what, there's no point in aiming for the bullseye. I'm just going to shoot all the arrows off to the side. 
what you would do is get up again and do the exact same thing, purging your mind of uncertainty and doubt and insecurity. And so the power that this gives people is the power to take that shot and, and eliminate the doubt and insecurity because by making very crystal clear rules, they can hear that voice in their head that says that chocolate is a vegetable. If I say, I will never eat chocolate again, and that's a very objectively observable um, definition of what healthy chocolate is for me. Right? You, you could also say, I'll only ever have chocolate again on weekends, or you could say, um, I'll only ever have vegan chocolate again, or wh- whatever you want to say, but, but it doesn't, I'm not saying that anybody in particular needs to give up chocolate, and you, there are all sorts of ways to finesse the rules. As long as they are objectively observable, then, then there's no wiggle room or your inner pig or your inner B-I-T-C-H to sneak things through and, and tell you that chocolate is a vegetable and for it to attend appealing. You're going you're gonna to know that that's pig squeal. And that, the, the analogy helps you to purge that doubt and insecurity because it immediately gets assigned to your lower brain and you wake up. And so most people tell me that they didn't realize that they could just stop doing something. They really thought they were powerless to stop doing something. And... Um, you know, they, they make mistakes, but they have much more, much more power and much more fortitude to keep getting up. And then eventually they stop. Then eventually they stop doing it. And then they go on to add something else that they want to stop doing. And eventually they construct a whole food plan and they're, they're eating, eating in a way that they don't recognize from before. And they, it, it's almost like they were drowning in shallow water and they didn't realize that they could just get up. And they got up and they're much better. That's that's what most people tell me. Um, a few people tell me it made it worse. A few people tell me that there was something about the um, there's something about the notion of never that makes them feel concerned about um, if they're going to be overly restricted, and then that makes them want to restrict, and then they, which I really don't recommend. Um, and they get they get too involved with the guilt if they make a mistake, and I tell them, well, that's that's kind of like if you accidentally touch a hot stove, you want to feel pain for a moment. It's okay to feel shame for a moment. So you pay attention to where the stove was and you don't touch it again. But after that, you don't, there's no point in eating yourself up and saying, oh, my God, I'm such an idiot. I touched that stove. I'm, I'm always going to be a stove toucher. I'm powerless to stop touching stoves. Um, there's no point in that. Just, just figure out where the stove was. Figure out how you're going to remember where the stove was and then start again. And the interesting thing is the, um, all the negative thinking that occurs and all the self-deprecation and self-flagellation that occurs after a mistake, what I've learned is that that's really the pig wearing you down so that you'll binge some more. It's very difficult. Carol Munter taught me this. It's, it's very difficult to keep binging if you refuse to yell at yourself. The... the Self-criticism is an inherent part of the binging psychology. Um, anyway, so those are the three things that people tell me. Most people tell me it gives them an amazing power they hadn't had before and requires some practice and cultivation, but it makes a tremendous difference for them. Some people say, I'm, I'm an idiot and you know, I'm ruining the world <laughs> and all about it. And a, a, a select few people tell me it makes it worse. And, um, and if it makes it worse, then don't do it. That's what I think. 
Well, you're Never Binge Again Everywhere. That's the website, the book, the Facebook page, and the Twitter. And you said something that I think would make a perfect tweet, and that is it's very difficult to keep binging if you stop yelling at yourself. That's beautiful. Self-acceptance is so important. So tell us, Glenn, in your opinion, I know that professionally you come from the psychological end of things, but very few people are binging on whole natural plant foods. Certainly in my history I have. (laughs) Now when you're binging, if the only thing around is a whole natural plant food, you'll even binge on that. But generally speaking, people go for, for the process, the rich, the very highly flavored kinds of, of foods that come from manufacturing plants. Does this have anything to do with this epidemic of binge eating that exists in our society? It sure does. And this is why I'm a little embarrassed to have done all the work with Big Food a long time ago. Um, there's a tremendous amount of money in packaging as many calories in a smaller space with as many stimulants as possible for, uh, and, and then working on the packaging and look of the food and mouthfeel of the food with artificial, um, with artificial ingredients and spending billions of dollars to make it seem healthy. Um, and, and what, what's happened is that the food industry has created these hyper-palatable, unnatural substances which are akin to drugs. There were no chocolate bars on the Savannah. We didn't have, you know, Doritos and Pop-Tarts on the Savannah. We had whole fresh, right, for our natural fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds. And, you know, but very largely, we, every other anthropoid primate still lives on natural plant foods. If you, um, if you go to a zookeeper and see what the zookeeper is going to feed a gorilla or what the zookeeper is going to feed a monkey, you're going to find that they all thrive on whole fresh, right, for our natural plant foods, right? Um, and that's right. The grand, yeah. So, and, 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 and what happens is that the industry has hijacked our survival drive. These are evolutionary buttons that they're pushing. And there were all sorts of studies that show that when you give people the ability, people or animals, the ability to hyper-stimulate their pleasure centers in a way that's really not available in nature, that, that they gravitate towards that at the expense of self-care. I think it was Warner and Olds or Mills and Olds back in the 60s or 50s. They did a whole series of experiments with rats, which um, I, I now don't believe in animal experimentation, but this is... Um, it's illustrative of the problem, and so I think it's okay that we use the information. Um, the, they implanted electrodes in the rat's pleasure centers, and they connected them to levers that the rats could use to self-stimulate. And what they found was that not only did the rats press these levers thousands of times per hour, but pregnant rats would press the button at the expense of their nursing pups. They would abandon their nursing pups to just keep pressing the button. Starving rats would press the button um, in, in lieu of eating food or drinking water that was in the cage. And the experiments had to be interrupted to make the, make the rats eat. Um, rats would cross barriers with electrical shock just to get to the lever and keep pressing it. it it's, it's, 
the the way that the pleasure centers are stimulated goes to the very center of our brain, and we we neglect to care for ourselves because these pleasure centers are available. Thankfully, when you recognize what's happening and you recognize that the structure of the brain is set up so that we are superior to the lizard brain, the, the mammalian brain and the neocortex can inhibit almost any impulse. Um, and when you realize what's happening with big food and you stop, you make some rules for yourself and you stop eating some of these industrial foods and you start replacing it with, I, I, I try not to tell people how to eat, but sometimes I tell them I eat. <laughs> but if, if you have some leafy green vegetables, I, I tell people, even try it if you had a binge and you want to recover quickly, um, blend up a half pound or so, unless your doctor says you can't do this, blend up a half pound or so of leafy green vegetables with some water and just drink it. And what you'll find is that your survival drive starts to gravitate towards those leafy greens. That there, there was something you were craving when you went for the pizza or the pasta or the, um, you know, or the chocolate bar. There's something you were craving that was a, uh, a, misdirected, a misdirected survival drive, which was your survival drive originally craving it. It was misdirected to the chocolate or the pizza or the pasta and if people want to eat those foods, and I know a lot of people that do eat some of those foods, um, and it starts to correct itself because now you gave it the experience that the leafy green vegetable can provide that natural energy that, that you know we evolved to to eat to to seek, and um, over time, if you use this philosophy and you keep remembering to go back to those those natural plant foods, you'll find that they don't get you high in the same way that chocolate will get you high. Uh, and by the way, I prefer the term getting high with food to numbing out with food, even though, even though these industrial foods do have an analgesic effect on the emotions because they interfere with the nervous system's ability to conduct the emotions. I prefer the term getting high with food because it's really that overstimulation of the pleasure center that um, high with food is something that's dystonic to most people. It really illustrates the, uh, the addictive nature of what they're doing as opposed to numbing out. That, that causes you to feel more sorry for yourself and um, you know, kind of puts you back into the, well, let, my love, let me love myself thin first. But let me make it totally clear. I want you to love yourself. If you need a hug, I'll give you a hug. I, I'm, I'm that kind of person. I'm just a big, a big teddy bear. Um, but I don't, I don't have any mercy on the, on the lizard brain inside you that's destroying your life by driving you more and more towards these industrial foods. Um, that's a victory. I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Things get so much easier when you go vegan. Things get so much easier when. You know, it's possible to be a junk food vegan also, so I should qualify that. But when, when you go vegan towards whole, fresh, um, you know, natural plant foods, it gets so much easier. In my experience, it gets even easier than that when you go raw. Um, you well, I wanted to ask you that. I mean, and I completely agree with you because for me, when I, when I did come to the recovery place through obviously what we said is the opposite, but I'm not sure it's exactly opposite. But anyway, 
once that happened for me, that was when I was finally able to really be vegan. And, and just the idea that, that the food is certainly at that time, the vegan food was almost all real. I guess, okay, we had potato chips, but other than that, it, <laughs> there were no processed vegan foods. Right. And so it, it just really worked, um, hand in glove. But for you as a raw fooder, a lot of people would say, oh, that's restrictive. And anybody who's had food issues shouldn't retrit, restrict. So really quickly, how does that work for you? Well, I do believe that people who have food issues um, should be careful of setting up a food plan which is deficient in calories or nutrition. Um, a raw food diet is not deficient in calories or nutrition. If you eat as much fruit and leafy greens as you want and some nuts and seeds, you can easily have as many calories as you need and not feel restricted. You actually don't even have to feel craving. Um, so you, you, you need to, there are some things you need to pay attention to as you're doing that because as you're adjusting to a raw food diet, you wind up eating a lot more volume to get your calories um, because you're no longer eating condensed or processed foods. Like you, you need to have, you know, a thousand calories of pasta versus or, or brown rice as compared to a thousand calories of bananas. Um, a thousand calories of bananas is going to look a lot bigger on your plate than a thousand calories of brown rice, and it's going to feel a lot bigger in your stomach. And and so you actually need to, you know, make, maybe enter the calories in a and the nutrition in um, one of the online calories, my fitness pal, or something like that, just so you know that you're not restricting. So I, I, I do think there's a natural tendency to restrict when people adopt the raw food diet going really. Um, and, I'm, and I'm much more of an advocate of the, the lower fat raw, raw food, the 80-10-10, or as a matter of fact, I'm writing a book with Doug Graham. But, um, you're writing a book with Doug Graham? I am. Oh, that's yeah, cool. Well, t- tell him hi. We go back. <laughs> okay, I will. I sure cool. Will. Now, speaking of books... Um, Tell us how to get yours and how we can find out more about your work and what you do. Okay. So I've got all sorts of things available for you on neverbingeagain.com. If you click the free button, the big red free button, there's free reader bonuses, but you'll, you'll also get a free copy of the Amazon Kindle or the Barnes & Noble Nook or a PDF if you prefer, um, if you just go and sign up for that. The other reason you should click the red button and sign up for the um, rainbow bonuses that never bitch again is because in practice, this really seems like a harsh philosophy, but in reality, it's a, in theory, it's a harsh philosophy, but in reality, it's really not. It's very compassionate. And I've recorded a whole bunch of coaching sessions that you can listen to. So you can see how it's actually implemented in practice. I've also created a set of food plan starter templates. So I, I have, I have a template for vegans. I have a template for vegetarians. I have a template for even low-carb or paleo people. I kind of hold my nose and work with people in whatever philosophy they want to because I believe that establishing the power to stick to your plan is the first step in discovering health. Um, and so I, I, my book itself is diagnostic. <laughs> I so, get it. 
Yeah. Thank you so, so very much, uh, Dr. Glenn Livingston, NeverBingeAgain.com. Listeners, I'll have all the information uh, for both Dr. Livingston and Jean-Pierre on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. And I wish you all a wonderful week. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. It is the birthright of each and every one of us to live an awakened life. Most religions and spiritual traditions teach us that we need to adopt a certain belief system or follow some prescribed steps to attain a state of enlightenment. A long-held belief about awakening is that only a small number of people destined to become gurus or spiritual teachers can attain it. It is certainly true that until recent times, only a small number of people on the planet had attained this state of full self-realization. These saints, mystics, and spiritual masters were seen as special. They certainly were at the time. However, times are changing. This message was brought to you by T.J. Woodward, host of Awakened Living Radio. Learn more from T.J. on his weekly podcasts. Episodes are available on unityonlineradio.org, iTunes, and Google Play Music. those closest to you, your family, your friends, your co-workers. The people you spend the most time with can tell you much about yourself. How? One way is that quite often what we see in others is, in some way, a reflection of something within ourselves. What we most admire in another may be a quality we possess but have not yet recognized. It's also true that what we dislike most in another may also reflect some trait within ourselves that we aren't aware of. Whether our response to them is positive or negative, other people can serve as mirrors to teach us about ourselves. Look with new eyes at the people around you. Chances are, all of the behaviors and attitudes you see in them contribute to the way you show up in the world. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. Have you ever considered that everything you think, say, and do is a prayer to the universe? What would your life be like if you activated the power of yes? Join Reverend Beverly Molander and her exciting guests on Affirmative Prayer, Activating the Power of Yes, to find out how they activated the power of yes in their lives, their communities, or even the world. If they can do it, you can too. Listen to Beverly Molander and her guests live every Monday at noon central. 1 p.m. Eastern on Affirmative Prayer, activating the power of yes. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? 
I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life.